Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. St David's Day weekend saw the release of two voter intention polls with very different results. That same week, a third poll was released, in which we saw the highest support ever recorded for Welsh independence. In Scotland, there was a week of great turmoil and change, with the Salmon scandal and the election of Anna Sawa as Scottish Labour leader. We ask what impact will this have on the upcoming elections in May? And to answer those questions is Jack Lana, who's a lecturer in political science at the World's Governance Centre at Cardiff University, who's currently working on the Scottish and Welsh election studies. Hello, Jack. Hello, thanks for having me back. Oh, thank you very much for coming on. How are the studies going? Good. Uh, we're kind of just uh, in the process of finishing um, some questionnaires, which has been a kind of a manic uh, task. And uh, sure. But uh, yeah, it's good. Yeah. So we'll start with the, the flurry of polls we had over St. David's Day weekend. We saw two separate Welsh voter intention polls, like with, as I said, very different results, which led to a lot of people asking the question, how could they possibly be so different? Would you be able to shed some light on why you think they had slightly different outcomes? Yeah, sure. So well, I suppose it's actually a good, it's a good thing that we've got uh, several different polling houses, as we'd refer to them, basically just different uh, survey companies. So the ones we've had in the last week have been from YouGov, which do the barometer polling, if people are uh, familiar with those. Um, ICM, who do this kind of annual St. David's Day poll. And then a new one um, by Savanta Comres as part of a kind of a larger Channel 4 programme, or was it ITV? One of the TV uh, stations. Um, but how these polls are carried out, uh, so they're all carried out, uh, actually, uh, Comres and YouGov are carried out online. Um, ICM tend to use a lot of uh, phone polling. Hi there, quick interruption to the pod. Jack sent in a brief description on the ICM polling model after we recorded, which is why it sounds a little different. ICM used telephone interviews. They don't interview people online like YouGov and Comres. Instead, what they do is randomly dial numbers in Wales and interview people like that. Um, so it's more random, which is a good thing, but also has some shortcomings. The biggest of these being non-response bias, right? So not many people will answer the phone to complete strangers anymore, especially now we can kind of see who's calling us a lot of the time. Also, some people might not have a phone, especially landlines. You know, fewer and fewer people have landlines. And so you might actually be interviewing uh, a group of people who's quite different to the rest of the population, or rather you might be uh, undersampling certain kinds of people. But the key differences uh, basically will be down to um, uh, the sample makeup. So who is in the sample? And they all do this in kind of different ways. So in an ideal world, when you do a poll, uh, you'd take a random selection of say a thousand people. And uh, by random, I just mean you'd have a a list of every person over 18, over 18 and you'd randomly uh, pick a thousand of them and you'd uh, contact them some way and ask them the questions. That's the best way to do it and that would be uh, a way of getting kind of a properly representative sample. So that's what we're really aiming for, a representative sample. How these survey companies have to do it now is just because of the, co the sheer costs of actually you know, sending people out to email people, uh, sorry, to uh, interview people, sorry, or even call people on telephones, that kind of thing. Uh, they use online panels, and these panels are full of people who have already signed up to be a member of a YouGov panel or a Comres panel or so on. Now, if there's a, any kind of bias within the panel, that bias will be replicated in the survey results. So if, for example, uh, your panel had too many, uh, well, uh, Labour labor supporters, um, then obviously any poll you take from or any sample you take from that panel is likely to be skewed in f uh, f 
favor of a kind of higher labor support and it's the same all of them so that's really probably why we're seeing these differences is the different makeups of their panels and therefore the samples they take from these panels which of these vote intention polls felt more accurate to you and i i don't want you to start guessing what the result of the election will be just yet, but in terms of we're looking at the trends of recent polls, do, do either of them look like they follow a trend or perhaps an outlier? Oh, we're going to be very, very boring here and use my years of uh, <laughs> education, reading books and things to say that uh, it's probably somewhere in between all of the polls, I'd say. So the ICM poll, which was the St. David's Day poll, which um, had a really strong showing for Labour, that to me seemed, well, I was surprised by how high that support was for Labour. And also, if you looked in the poll, ICM have tended to also give kind of strong showing to Applied Cymru over the years, which suggests that they perhaps tend to contact uh, or in their sample tend, tend to have kind of a bit more of a Welsh skew, you might say, people who think of themselves as Welsh. Similarly, the YouGov poll, which was the, the Wales Online poll, which showed Labour doing considerably worse, uh, still projected to kind of uh, be the largest uh, party by quite some way, but um, considerably worse in terms of vote share. That seems a little bit low to me, just because of some of the other information we have on kind of perceptions of how, in particular, Mark Drakeford is doing, how popular Mark Drakeford is, perceived handling of the Welsh Labour government's response to uh, vaccines, lockdown, that kind of stuff. So I'd say it's probably somewhere in the middle of those two in terms of vote intention. Um, yeah, but it's tricky because this is the problem. There are no random sample polls that take place in Wales um, at all. So in England and Scotland, there there are, which means you kind of have a useful benchmark to compare against. Uh, in Wales, we don't really have that. So um, it means that we're never really sure which kind of sample is actually uh, doing the best job of providing like a representative snapshot of the electorate. Everyone always gets very interested in the actual seat numbers that come mm. from these polls. I think most of them, if not all of them, use sort of a national uniform swing yeah. way of working it out. Do you think there's any danger that that uniform swing approach can give people the wrong impression of what seats are actually competitive or, or in play come election time? Yes, well, well, uh, there's pros and cons to that UNS kind of uh, uniform national swing. So for anyone who doesn't know, that, that just assumes that if a poll shows that Labour's vote share is uh, three points higher than it was at the last election, then that means in every single constituency, the Labour vote share will go up by three points. And you kind of, that's, that's what the assumption you make. Now, obviously, in reality, that that never happens in election. There's different things going on in different constituencies. Uh, there might be, you know, a candidate scandal in one constituency as opposed to another. Uh, independence might run if you look at someone like Blaine Gwen. There's always an independent uh, causing havoc there, in some way. So, from that point of view, sometimes it suggests that you know certain seats might be up for grabs. A key one in Wales is again. So, Plaid Cymru did very very well in Blaine Gwent uh, in the constituency in 2016 surprisingly well they're very unlikely to do as well this time but just because of the assumptions when we put in these polls into a swing projection uh, it normally shows that blind went is going uh, to be won by Plaid Cymru for example oh, but, but I suppose the what proponents of it would say or defenders of UNS would say that okay well it might get one or two wrong but kind of if you actually zoom out it tends to get the overall picture about right there's also another slight complication though using it in Wales is of course the voting system we use at Senate elections 
has the constituency ballot, which is you know, a bit more straightforward. So it's first past the post, whoever gets the most votes wins. But then we also have this list ballot and projecting uh, seat winners on, on the list is very, very tricky. Um, because the whoever wins the final seat on the list, those com uh, comp or those, that contest tends to come down to a very small number of votes. And the polls we have aren't very good at kind of giving us much clarity there. So you, you should always take, especially list projections with these polls with a pinch of salt, I would say. Well, that makes it very tricky, I suppose, in Wales, because those couple of seats that Labour usually win on a list in mid and west Wales could make the difference between them being able to govern or not or lied or the Conservatives being able to form something that resembles a majority. So it's really hard, therefore, to make an accurate guess of what we're actually going to see in May, no matter who the poll is uh, done by, I suppose. Right, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, especially if you look at somewhere like the Lib Dems, uh, you know, whether they win a seat or not, uh, I'm assuming their vote share is going to be pretty low this time and therefore their best chance of winning a seat is if they don't win Brecon and Radnorshire, the uh, constituency, then it will be the last seat on a list, which will probably come down to, you know, a few dozen votes. And therefore, when we're looking, looking at terms of like, you know, the difference between a 4% vote share overall for Lib Dems and a 5% vote share, boiling that there down then to a few dozen seats, there's a lot of uncertainty in those projections. So, yeah, we should be careful. Looking at these polls then, some, I think, probably looked at that Sunday poll and, and saw it as a, a bump for Labour coming out of their uh, vaccination rollout successes. Do you think that Labour should be expecting some sort of bump as a consequence of their successful vaccine rollout? Or do you think that there's still uh, an element of confusion amongst the Welsh population about which government in particular is responsible for that? And could you envisage at all being there a bump for the Conservatives accordingly? Sure. Well, we know at the UK or the Great Britain level um, in polls uh, that there has been a bit of a bump for the Conservatives. So it would be strange if people in Wales were completely immune to that because we still get most of our information from the same places as people in England, that kind of stuff. So it'd be strange if we didn't see that. I mean, um, but at the same time, there probably should be, Labour should expect some kind of bump. I mean, the uh, the vaccine programme is going really well in Wales. I mean, that's kind of, a, I think, an undeniable fact, really, when you compare it to other countries in the world. I think Wales is, what, fourth in the world at the moment, something like that. And, and, th and there is also a tendency, so while there is some confusion about which level of government is responsible for different things, but prior to the pandemic, a majority of people did know that the Welsh government, devolved government, is responsible for healthcare matters. I have, we don't have any data on this uh, definitively, but uh, if I had to put my if I had to put, put my money on, I'd bet that the proportion of people now who are aware that the Welsh Labour government is responsible for uh, you know health in Wales would be considerably higher, given um, uh, just just kind of how in your face suddenly <laughs> the Welsh government uh, is. You know they're on telly a lot, Mark Drakeford's a lot um, talking about health all the time. So I think there will have been a change there. But we also we also know there is this kind of trend you see in the Welsh electorate where when things are going good, people's automatic reactions to say, oh well that's because of the devolved government. Generally, not everyone of course, but uh, and when things are going bad, they tend to say, oh it's blooming Westminster messing everything up so, so there, is, uh, there is that as well. There's been a lot of claims in well in England especially 
that people are sort of rallying to their rallying to the flag in their answers to to polls and just backing the government of the day no matter what because they want to be seen to be supportive of the state and its people is there any evidence of that do you think uh, either at a uk level or a scottish or a welsh level like rallying effects in times of crisis is a really well established uh, like phenomenon in political science it happens kind of all over the world and the uk again is not immune to that i think especially we saw it at the beginning of the pandemic uh, there was like widespread support uh, for, well, especially the Conservative government, the UK government. There's also a degree to which something like a pandemic like this, um, a lot of people will see it as kind of a, an act of God, almost as if, oh, well, there's nothing the government could could have done about this. So it's, it's unfair to blame them for when things go wrong. That tends to be strongest, unsurprisingly, amongst, say, partisans of the incumbent. So basically, you know, if you're a Conservative support, uh, supporter, then uh, you're probably going to give the UK government the benefit of the doubt. And of course, there, there may be, there, you know, there may be some truth to the idea that, well, you know, it's difficult to prepare for a global pandemic that happens once in a century. But then I suppose there's also the other, the flip side, well, according to a lot of international measures, the UK hasn't done particularly uh, well. Uh, and I suppose that would include the devolved governments as well, you know. And so uh, attribution and blame of governments is something that we talk a lot about in kind of the folk theory of democracy, but in real life it's far more complicated and tends to boil down to pre-existing identities, really. So we've talked a little bit about the, the two St. David's Day polls. I want to turn now to the, the Comres uh, ITV poll. So that gave the highest level of support ever for Welsh independence. I'm going to ask you two questions, really. Why do you think that is? And I've seen a lot of concern from that poll about the sample size in it. So is there any sampling uh, reasons why that poll could show a particular result one way or the other? Uh, so this is really interesting. So it's one, I think it's great that another pollster is doing stuff in Wales. Uh, but but uh, we obviously, because they're so new in Wales, we don't really know much about their panel in Wales. So who the panel consists of. And of course, like we said before, is that if your panel has certain biases in it, then the samples you draw from it are also likely going to reflect those biases. So uh, you can look at like various, like the cross tabs that uh, all these companies have to put, that they have to publish, so they're all publicly available online. And you can have a look at kind of the breakdowns of these. In terms of, I don't know, uh, isolating kind of one uh, one issue with uh, Cogmez, I'm not, not entirely sure that's the best way of doing it because I could also identify issues with uh, uh, the YouGov sample and the ICM sample, which might suggest why. So I, I suppose the key message, and again, it's a very boring one. Uh, it's not very sexy, but um, uh, yeah, you should always bear in mind kind of what the sample comp uh, composition is and the panel composition. It, it could, of course, just be the case that it actually has nothing to do with the <laughs> sample and it's all to do with a, a massive rush uh, towards independence, but um, we'll, we'll I'm not sure. What would your uh, guess be? Do you think it is a, a big rush? It wouldn't be out of uh, the ordinary, especially with the way that the movement's been growing in Wales. I wouldn't be surprised if there was some movement towards uh, independence, especially with the kind of success of the vaccine rollout. But I would be surprised if it was that, uh, if we'd seen that kind of surge in such a short amount of time. But but it, it, we do know that it is growing. It is growing fast. So um, in in 2019, so the kind of big study, last big study we did in Wales. Was the 2019 around the 2019 general election so we did a welsh election study then and then i, I think it was around 20 
21-22% of people said they support uh, independence. There's consistently, and that was with YouGov, so we're using YouGov's panel there. There's been several YouGov polls since then, which have shown an increase. And because it's drawn from the same panel, I'm kind of inclined to think, okay, well, that's a real increase there. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I mean, we, have, we don't have enough, we don't have enough data on it, to be honest. I mean, one, one thing that we do know that's grown, which is really interesting, and this is, well, it took us by surprise when we first saw it, but it, we're consistently seeing, and we can track this again over time through different polls, but also election studies, the number of Labour supporters who favour independence is growing again and again and again and again. Um, and it doesn't seem to be slowing down just yet. So there's now been consistently, we've seen some public polling, but I've also seen some private polling, which has shown that a majority of Labour supporters in Wales now favour independence. And so if there is growth, that's where it's coming from. It's not, it's not necessarily, it's not, people aren't going, changing like support to Plaid Cymru, for example, and therefore through Plaid Cymru supporting independence, it seems to be independent of Plaid Cymru, this uh, growth. So if there is any growth, it's likely coming from those Labour supporters. I think most people, especially I suppose in Scotland, would be quite shocked by that because when Labour supporters in Scotland decided they want to back independence, they started backing the SNP. So why do you think that is? Why do you think that there's not been this uh, direct, direct crossover from Labour to Plaid like there was from Labour to the SNP? Labour in Wales has always done a much better job of branding itself as Welsh. Scottish Labour didn't really, you know, they did a, to be, to be honest, after Donald Dewar, they did a really poor job of uh, branding themselves as, as kind of a Scottish party. Welsh Labour have been very, very persistent on that and it seems now that they're kind of redigging <laughs> uh, or you know re-emphasizing that message so there's that but there's also I mean the key to we've asked people before you know we've done lots of things in uh, the Welsh election study in the past about why people don't think they would vote for Plaid Cymru or why don't Plaid Cymru have the same success and one of the main things that comes up is the language well there there are you know there is um a language minority in Scotland is much, much smaller and far more geographically concentrated, mostly the Western Isles. In Wales, there still seems to be this perception that Plaid Cymru is a party for people who speak Welsh. And if you don't speak Welsh, you can't vote for them. And therefore, there might be something that, you know, I'm thinking there's probably, that's, that probably boils down to that, plus the idea that you can be, uh, Wel Welsh Labour is Welsh kind of thing. I think those two, uh, those are the two big factors. So going back to a different poll, uh, the BBC St. David's poll, it also asked a question on Welsh independence, but it had a much, much uh, lower figure. I think it was like 14%. And I, again, we, I think a lot of people have seen uh, conflicting explanations for why that figure is, is so much lower. Perhaps it was the panel, as, as you've said, but do you think that's because of the wording and the way the question is asked? Or do you think that's because yeah. often they give people a, a range of different constitutional options don't they yes yeah, so the commerce poll was basically like a ref we'd call it a referendum question where basically the, op the options are uh you know if, if there was a referendum tomorrow how would you vote yes no so there's only two options in the icm poll they give five different options so there's um independence more powers for the senate keep things as they are now less powers for the senate and get rid of the senate so obviously, when you give people more options, they're going to break in different ways. So that's why. I mean, if you add, if you if you add up the people saying uh, uh, independence and 
uh, and more powers, what do you get? Uh, probably about half of the sample, I think. Uh, the whole sample. Okay, I've just seen it's 49%, so <laughs> uh, as close to that as possible. So if we say that some of those people who would, who in the Comrades poll would say yes to independence, uh, they might actually favour just more powers generally, maybe something like a Devo Max, which was talked about a lot in Scotland. But in that kind of question, they're going to say, uh, yeah, I'd, vote, I'd vote yes. And there's, there's pros and cons to both, right? Because people generally aren't very good at imagining how they would vote in an imaginary referendum. So there's that. Um, it's also not as salient at the time, right? But a lot of people aren't actually thinking about this question. It's, it is definitely a question that it mostly interests a lot of political nerds like, like us. <laughs> Uh, but then also the uh, five, uh, so the, the five kind of question or the five option question that ICM run where you get all those different options. Uh, again, I, uh, I doubt many people are, are really thinking about it in those terms generally in their day-to-day -day lives, if at all in their day-to-day -day lives. So. Is there an equivalent Scottish version of that question? Because obviously what we see down in Wales is, is a lot of the headline yes, no independence polling figures but i don't tend to see a lot of would you favor more powers would you favor the status quo would you favor abolition sort of questions in scotland so it used to be asked uh, right up until 2014 and then after the referendum they kind of stopped asking it because i think they think that okay well the, you know there's only one way that you know to ask this question anymore in scotland it was you saw a similar-ish pattern i mean f fewer people wanted to get rid of the scottish parliament and there was a bigger majority for kind of more powers, but you know there was a lot of talk in Scotland at the time of the referendum whether there should be an option on the ballot, you know, for Devo Max, um, whatever whatever that actually means. But um, yeah, in Scotland and Wales, what we do have is these feeling thermometers, we call them. So you have a scale. You just present someone with a kind of a scale. Um, and a needle and they can drop this needle at any point on the scale and at one point of the scale it says abolish the Scottish Parliament or Senate and at the other it says independence. So we do have those comparative questions and unsurprisingly in general the kind of median place for the Scottish voters is further to independence but there are some really interesting things. I mean Scottish Tory voters are more in favour of getting rid of the Scottish Parliament than Welsh Tory voters are in favour of getting rid of the Senate, but that obviously never gets talked about because the actual talking point is independence or not. Well, I'm sure that'll be very interesting for our listeners who all think the Tories want to abolish the Senate. Um, so looking at that yes-no question in Scotland, I mean, we've seen months and months and months of solid polls showing yes in the lead. But in the last week or so, I think there's been a, a little bit of a tightening on that figure. And similarly, with a tightening on the SNP's polling lead in Hollywood polls, do you think that's just to do with everything that's going on with Alex Salmond, or do you think there are other issues at play as well? Yeah, I don't think it's to do with Alex, the Alex Salmond thing. Um, if you actually look, ever since November, the trend has been a decrease in SNP support and a decrease in support for independence. Uh, and in back in November, this wasn't really being talked about, and it certainly wasn't headline news by any. You know, um, so I think it's probably far more to do with, um, you, you know, around the time of um, <laughs> what do you call it, the mass incompetence of the UK government, I suppose. <laughs> uh, trying to be objective, but around the times of say Dominic Cummings and um, 
lots of confusing messages. There was de- there was a, this big bump in support, and I think that was definitely uh, to do with this idea that um, Nicholas Sturgeon in particular was far more competent, and, and therefore a, a, an independent Scotland would be run more competently. So competence is a big thing. The vaccine rollout has changed that, I would say, because the UK government does seem quite competent. I mean, that, that is a good thing that the UK government have done, I suppose, or at least to be seen to be doing. So that's where that change is. Uh, I, I don't think the salmon stuff has had... It might do in the next couple of weeks, just because up here it has... So I, I should explain, I am in Edinburgh at the moment, but it has been kind of wall-to-wall coverage, but uh, I don't think the kind of trend we've seen is actually as a result of that. Obviously, when, when the um, referendum in Scotland was announced, 2012, the, the first one, yes, was polling in the sort of uh, medium 20s. And obviously, you saw a huge growth as you got closer and closer to the actual referendum taking place. Do people in Scotland assume that there would be a, maybe not equivalent growth, but maybe a, a, an additional growth once a campaign started? Is that the assumption? In a new, if there was a new referendum, you mean another one? I don't think so, because last time there was a few things at play. So first, there was far more voters up for grabs. Uh, there was a lot of people who were undecided. Um, the second is that when the referendum was actually announced, it wasn't really that salient. It wasn't that important a point for most people. Most people hadn't really thought about it too hard. And so the kind of long campaign that you saw, of essentially like two years of campaigning, really, um, that will have changed a lot of people's minds. Now, Scotland is very sorted into kind of yes and no camps. There's not many people in the middle who are undecided. And there's not many, there's not that many people who would change their mind from one way to the other. I mean, there's a there's a small chunk, but not a massive. Um, so therefore, like kind of movement in a campaign would be relatively small now. On that issue of, of salience, I think a lot of people in Wales are quite surprised that the independence figure is so high without the salience of a, of a referendum campaign. Uh, are you surprised? And, and do you think that maybe not there wouldn't be equivalent growth to what happened in Scotland, but do you think that a campaign may see some uh, growth in that in that figure when it becomes a more salient issue for people? Uh, it's Yeah, it's, it's certainly possible. I mean, it isn't that salient at the moment, but it has been becoming more salient, I think, because we're always talking about it now. And, and there's been interest in the UK media as well. So they pay for more polls, and then because the polls show this, then it gets talked about more. And so it, it is becoming slightly more salient. I mean, it's not it's certainly nothing like it is in Scotland. Um, I'll say that. But... Uh, yeah, I, I suppose I suppose the question is, if there was a campaign, how competent and successful would the campaign be? I mean, because, you know, the, the independence campaign in Scotland was very well run um, and was very effective. Uh, so I suppose that would be the, the question. Um, but uh, with all again, with all this stuff, I think when we're talking about these questions, which, again, are interesting to people like us, but uh, I think it is important to bear in mind that most people in Wales aren't really thinking about this stuff and therefore you have to think about the psychology of what it's like when people actually do a survey right they're being asked a lot of questions about topics they're not thinking about day to day and they're not really that invested in putting a lot of time and effort into answering these questions so a lot of the time it's kind of a very quick kind of off the top of the head uh, response if there was a campaign I think you'd see a lot of movement all over the place and that kind of 
question. And, and just to point out again, that is different in Scotland where it's far more salient. It's kind of the biggest division in Scottish society, really, is this yes-no divide. So people do think about it more. Yeah. There's been another happening in the last few weeks in Scottish politics. The once mighty Scottish Labour Party have elected another leader. Do you expect there to be any sort of post-election bump uh, for Scottish Labour after after uh, electing Anna Sawa? Being the third party now in Scotland, can they expect enough media attention to really see any kind of rise in support? Um, no. I have <laughs> to give one answer, no. I mean, the, the, you know, their election of their new leader couldn't have come at a worse time. Uh, no one has covered it apart from that one day because of the uh, Sturgeon giving evidence in Scottish Parliament. So that's been dominated Scottish uh, politics. We know that having a good leader image or at least having a lot of people know who the party leader is, is really important for campaigns. Um, people don't read through manifestos and press releases. So the leader is kind of like this shortcut or a, a heuristic, we'd call it, to be all fancy. Um, but it's just a shortcut to what you think of the actual party. So if people don't know who the leader is, then they don't know what the party means or stands for. Uh, it's also not ideal. I mean, you're not going to have a regular campaign for one anyway. And you've only been elected, uh, you know, eight weeks out from a, an election. It's really tough. Very tough. The, I mean, for Sawa, the only thing going is that he has some name recognition. I mean, his father, he, he was an MP and his father was an MP for a while. Uh, so there is that, but I, it's really difficult and and also Scottish Labour don't have a don't they don't have an answer to this independence cleavage the Tories are obviously the party of the union the SNP are obviously the party uh, of independence and if you don't like the SNP you'd vote for the Greens because uh, they're you know, Labour kind of aren't really anything they're just in the middle and also doesn't help is that they repeatedly undermined by UK Labour who come out and say something very different or a very hard unionist line. Whereas we know from the Scottish election study that Labour uh, supporters in Scotland are actually still quite indie curious. They're not pro-independence, but they're, they're kind of edging towards that way. So, yeah, I mean, I think they're in a real mess, uh, Scottish Labour. Well, looking at their last leader, from what I've heard, Richard Leonard didn't really have that bad uh, of a rating in terms of his polling but I, I guess no one really knew who he was which is the bigger problem yeah that so that was so people who knew who he was liked him but the problem was like you said very few people actually knew who he was um, he had very little facial recognition name recognition or voice recognition uh, if you ever heard Richard Lenny he has kind of a thick Yorkshire accent uh, as well um which you I don't know in an ideal world that maybe wouldn't matter but it, it does those kind of things do matter it's, I, I suppose it's kind of a bit similar to Adam Price, I think, in Wales, right? The people who know who Adam Price is really, really like him in these polls. He's consistently one of the most popular politicians we we ask about, um, if not consistently the most popular. Um, in 2019, for example, he was by far the most popular party leader. Um, but then the flip side is that of that is that 40% of voters in Wales didn't know who he was. That might have changed somewhat, but kind of that, that's that's the issue for. Uh, Fran Price there. What about the Scottish uh, Conservatives? Because obviously they had last in the last Scottish election and the last couple of general elections, they've had this huge figurehead of, of Ruth Davidson leading them, who was both very popular and very well known. At least that's what the impression is down here. 
how has that changed? Because obviously they had Jackson Carlo, who was it a flash in the pan for them, and now they've got Douglas Ross, who is a, a, an MP in Westminster. So how is that playing out for them, and how is Ross doing himself? He's not particularly popular, but Ruth Davison is now the leader of the, the kind of the uh, conservative group in the Scottish Parliament, and she is kind of headlining a lot of their campaigning. Um, so they're really relying on her. Uh, but, but again, I suppose, you know, as long as you're appealing to your core voters, you can appeal to the kind of core Tories with using Douglas Ross, you know, very strong kind of unionist, um, kind of slightly more socially conservative. So he kind of hits those kind of uh, notes, whereas Ruth Davison is more socially liberal um, and is quite good at winning over a lot of other voters this is just to show kind of how successful she was or rather the unionist message behind her was there's this weird stat that in 2017 there was this massive massive shift of labor voters to directly to the conservatives so in england so in england and uh, and in wales right the change between any two general elections of people who voted labor to the conservatives is probably around five percent right so it's, it's a small block but between 2015 and 2017, so that, by what I'm saying there is, uh, of all the people in Scotland who voted Labour in 2015, 27% voted for the Conservatives in 2017. And considering that traditionally these two parties are at the polar, are the kind of polar opposites, they're the enemies, they're the two ends of the kind of spectrum, it's kind of a historic change. Uh, and I think it just goes to show that, again, this like this cleavage in Scotland is so important. It's, it's so dominant, and uh, uh, or, or at least has been in the last few years. You know, who knows? It might die down a bit now, but, but yeah, wouldn't put any bets on it. Looking at all these polling trends, what would you imagine the results to be in Wales <laughs> and in Scotland? Sorry to put you on the spot, but I'm gonna. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, well, okay. So in Wales, you never bet against Welsh Labour probably the most successful electoral force anywhere in the world ever, as far as I can work out. Um, and all the polls show them as the largest party. I suppose the question in Wales would be whether they can form, I don't know, it's a single party government, a kind of minority government with support of one or two AMs, or they would have to go for some kind of more formal coalition. And I'm, I'm not going to put my neck out there and see which one I think is more likely. The question is, Scotland, I mean, again, the SNP will be the biggest party barring some massive, massive change in the next couple of weeks. Uh, it would have to be something really huge, uh, may, uh, potentially like the resignation of Nicola Sturgeon, I suppose. Um, uh, which, yeah, it's not beyond the realms of possibility, but still fairly unlikely at the moment, I think. But um, the question in Scotland is whether they'll win a majority of seats. I, I think it's kind of unfair to use that as a benchmark for SNP success, given that the the electoral system in Scotland is designed to prevent any parties winning an election, uh, sorry, a majority. So when the SNP won in a majority in 2011, they actually kind of broke the electoral system. That wasn't really supposed to happen. So the idea that we're basing our idea of SNP success on them doing so well that they actually break the electoral system, um, it's perhaps a little bit unfair, but... Uh, I mean, regardless, it looks likely that even if they fall short by a fair way, the Scottish Greens will likely pick up enough seats on the list to continue some kind of supply and demand agreement or maybe maybe a coalition, but uh, we'll see. You find it odd, though, despite all of Welsh Labour's 
supposed dominance in Wales. They've never managed to break that electoral system, even when they do really, really well in Senate election years. They've never been able to get that magic 31. But somehow the SNP have been able to, as you say, break the electoral system. And now you see some polls of them basically picking up nearly every constituency. Yeah, well, I suppose it is odd, but also the, the Scottish... Uh, electoral system is more proportional than uh, in Wales so they, they basically have more list seats so rather than being kind of two-thirds to a third split it's something like I can't remember exactly now but it's, it's something like 60-40 and so if the SNP wins something like 50% I mean it's unbelievable that you're talking about a party actually realistically winning half of every vote cast but if you win that um, yeah, it, it's more likely to be reflected uh, Labour, of course, are not going to get near 50%, again, barring something weird happening. And then it is less proportional. But I mean, I think it's probably, I mean, I don't know, it's probably a good thing that it's not that easy to win a majority in the Senate. But, well, Labour supporters might disagree. Jack, thanks so much for coming to speak to us today. If people want to find you on Twitter, where are you? Uh, Just at Jack Lana. Jack with no K. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Jack. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please don't forget to find us on Medium at Heroic Blog Cymru, on Facebook at Heroic Blog Cymru, and on Twitter at Heroic Blog. Thank you for listening to Heroic. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review.